Hello and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr Matt Lodder, who's one of the UK's, is the UK's premier expert on the history of tattoos and tattooing. And his new book is called Painted People, Humanity in 21 Tattoos. Matt, welcome. Hello and thanks for having me. It's very nice to meet you. Now this is kind of an extraordinary book because... You know, its subject matter is something which is notoriously permanent, but the arc of the story you tell as an art historian here is one of perpetual forgetting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is really what's one of the sort of driving uh, frustrations which led to this project is that it felt going through, the, it, it does feel going through the historical record that journalists and even, you know, noble and brave historians in the past have sort of tried to tell some of these stories before and explain that tattooing is, you know, has a much longer, much more diverse and much more continuous history than I think the popular culture imagines. But none of that seems to stick, you know. And um, I've been sort of frustrated for a long time with the media in the UK and in the US and elsewhere constantly saying that, you know, tattooing is this hot new trendy thing (laughs) new trendy thing now and you know you find examples of that going back 140 years at least and so probably naively I hope that this book will be the the last time anyone ever has to say in print that tattooing used to be confined just to sailors and soldiers but you know I'm sure I'll, be, I'll still be having these conversations right up to my retirement. Yes I think that's a, that's <laughs> a very optimistic position to take but with a bit of luck this book will sell a bazillion copies and People will take its message on board. But actually, can I ask how you started yourself? I mean, you're an art historian by training. You're obviously, we're on a podcast rather than audio, but I can see you've got lots of tattoos yourself. I mean, including some facial tattoos, which is... Yeah, some small ones. I'm a tattoo kind of collector, aficionado first, and an art historian second. I, I came to art history as a kind of method set, really, as a way of looking at the world, which would help me try and make sense of some of the questions that I had. There's 20 chapters in the book, but the, the 21st story is, is, is the story of my great-grandma, which is in one of the introductory sections. And basically, th- this was a story I was told when I was a kid. I got to, as part of a pair, really. My granddad was a submariner in the Dutch Navy, and he told me, intending me to warn me off getting tattooed, you know, that he woke up in a tattooist's chair in Jakarta, drunk on his rum ration, and... They were about to tattoo a fly on the end of his nose, all right? And he woke up and escaped just in time. So, all, yeah, all, all, well, all, all well and good. That's a kind of familiar, in some respects, story of a drunken sailor tattoo. But the other one was of my great-grandma. So my great-grandma, as I mentioned briefly in the book, was tattooed around the turn of the century. She was the daughter of a labourer from Kent. And her younger brother came home one day uh, with a tattoo machine that he got somewhere and said, hey, little sister, can I tattoo you? And she said, will it come off? And he said, uh, yes. <laughs> right. So, so obviously it didn't do. And she was stuck with this tattoo for the rest of her life. And like with all kids, you know, being told not to do something, you get fascinated with it. And, and I just really fell in love with tattooing. It was also the kind of time you know, in the 1980s when all the WWF wrestlers all had tattoos and all the kind of bands that I liked all had t- tattooing. And it was also a time of sort of emergence with other things like body piercing and it was just I was in the right place at the right time and then as I got older you know my dad said to me and maybe your dad said to you as well no one will pay you to read books for a living (laughs) and it turns out it turns out uh, reading books for a living is actually possible 
And so I found my way to try and, you know, make sense of, of, of tattooing and, and how we could make sense of the fact, for example, that my great grandma had a tattoo with a tattoo machine when I had been told, like most people, that tattooing was was not the kind of thing that young, you know, working class girls in England did. So, and, and that's really where the career came from. And, and over the course of my academic undergraduate training and master's training, I sort of fell into art history because it's a way of looking at images in context, you know, rather than just thinking about, you know, criminologically or psychologically, why would you do that to yourself? It's actually like, what can these images tell us? Not in a necessarily a kind of didactic way if we can translate what this image means but actually like what does this image tell us about the moment of its creation and that's the kind of theme I think that runs through the book you know it's like actually stumbling across art history as a way of thinking about tattooing is just a way of saying if we think about tattoos as you know indexes as images of the place and, and moment in which they were made we can perhaps learn something about those people and times and places and to finish that anecdote, I guess, my, my great-grandma, I, I found out, and again, we include a picture in the book, and this is the first time this, these images have ever been published, there was a very brief moment of time when you could, in Gamage's department store in London, a big, you know, sort of Debenhams, Harrods kind of place, in Holborn, you could walk in and you could buy a tattoo machine over the counter. Initially as electrical novelties, sold alongside <laughs> things like light-up boutonnieres, and then later as kind of basically professional equipment, you, you could augment your tattoo machine with a walnut foot pedal you know this is around about 1900 to 1910 and and the idea that you know tattooing was available over the counter first as a toy and then as professional equipment in the center of london itself i think is a really destabilizing thing if you have a particular idea about where tattooing comes from and who did it and when and why you know absolutely and, and you know i mean perhaps the the sort of perpetual amnesia regarding it is obviously because you know it's it's more ephemeral, yeah, relatively speaking, than canvas and so forth. So, but you do have, you know, I mean, start chronologically, a big section beginning with the sort of prehistory of what we know of tattooing in prehistory. I mean, we're introduced to these, you know, Otzi the Ice Man. Yeah, um, I'm particularly fond of. But can you tell me how we're able to know about prehistoric tattooing and how much we're able to know? I mean, there is a sort of sense in those early chapters that you always sort of reach a conclusion frustratingly or suggestively that goes, yeah, we can't really yeah. know what on earth they were on about. Yeah. yeah. I mean, essentially, you know, as you said, tattoos don't last very long. One, one tattoo artist once said in a beautiful quote, you know, tattoos last for life plus six months in general circumstances, <laughs> right? You know, they'll, they'll be decomposing in the ground. And so our data points are very, very few. Even when we think about tattoos that have survived the, the centuries and millennia, either through deliberate preservation, in the case of some Egyptian mummies, or in the case of kind of accidental preservation, just by, you know, in Otzi's case, having died on a mountainside in, and being frozen in the ice. The data points are very, very few. There are very, very few preserved tattooed mummies from any cultures. In Otzi's case, he's the only one we have at all from his culture and we know literally nothing about the cultural tradition he's from um, he was born or he lived I suppose about five and a half thousand years ago in the border of what is now Austria and Italy he was shot in the back murdered on a mountainside and left to die and he had tattoos on his body he's got these kind of tally marks um, he's the oldest preserved tattooed specimen we have you know he's the, he's the oldest yet you know formally identified but we don't really, you know, we have to kind of intuit 
what these tattoos might be. You know, maybe. And he's about three and a half thousand years before Christ. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And 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 maybe. So this this is kind of you know basically like what's called the Copper Age. So the early Bronze Age, and essentially like you know he could have been some tattooed hipster legend who you know who was the only tattooed man in town. Probably not, but we we can't tell. His tattoos are um, are quite simple. They're kind of tally marks and. And they're made likely by actually incising the skin rather than poking ink in, so opening up a wound, putting ink in it and leaving it to heal. Because they, his tattoos are found on place on his body that he had, for example, inflammation, the general idea is perhaps that they were some kind of medico-magical practice, that they were either intended to heal or alleviate pain or you know maybe they related to some broader belief system. But we don't know. Uh, we have to kind of guess. And actually that can lead us, that kind of guessing, unfortunately, can lead us to some, some strange and problematic places in other contexts. You know, and these are big arguments that are happening at the moment amongst paleoarchaeologists and anthropologists of the ancient world. So, for example, there's another chapter in the book about tattooing in ancient Egypt. And again, much of that is unknowable. But, for example, for a long time, the only tattooed mummies that we found with tattoos were female. And they had you know, to then figure out, well, who are these women? And of course, in the 19th century, when the Egyptology, this, these bodies were being first discovered and catalogued, right way through to the middle of the 20th century, who has tattoos? Well, loose and promiscuous women have tattoos, as far as we're concerned, in that period of time. So therefore, these mummies must be the bodies of, you know, courtesans or, or of, you know, harem members or some kind of, you know, sex cult <laughs> for the dead. And as more evidence has come out and more... But those are sort of 20th, 19th, 20th century presuppositions that exactly. have been brought to bear, rather, right? Yeah, we, we, you know, these presumptions are put on to the past. And, you know, as more work's been done from other, other lines of evidence, Egyptologists are now arguing that those women were, you know, had more, more complicated or, or, or more varied social roles, let's say. So, yeah, this is a problem. When we're looking at that really old stuff, we're dealing with a very small amount of data to start with. And we're always, of course, looking through the lens of lens of history and, and, and with with a particular set of biases and I, I of course include myself in that as well you know. Is there, a, is there a sense in which I mean when you're looking at if you like the sort of archaeological prehistorical evidence of tattooing are there sort of different parts of the world which had sort of distinctive tattooing histories I mean I think you say that the ancient Greeks as a rule didn't tattoo anybody except slaves yeah. you know, who, the, who were stigmatized yeah. uh, literally and do we have a kind of right okay these cultures did it and it was bog standard or these cultures did it as a sort of devotional you know uh, medical magical thing I mean is, is there any homogeneity or are there distinct strands you can see how does how does that matter? yeah out? so you know in the in the 1920s anthropologists were basically quite keen to say this idea of putting ink in your skin is so weird and so obscure and strange, it must have begun somewhere. There must be some kind of Prometheus, you know, who gave tattooing from the gods. There must be kind of an origin point of tattooing somewhere from, from whence it spread. My feeling, and I think this is more or less the consensus now, is that actually leaving a permanent mark in your skin is not that difficult, basically. You just need a way to create a wound and you need something to leave a mark and, you know, a needle or a sharp rock or a sharpened thorn or a sharpened animal bone will work to create the wound and then the ink you can make using things like carbon black from fires or oil 
or even in some some place in the world, you know, particular kind of plants. So we find kind of marking of the skin pretty much everywhere always. Slight exception with the southern parts of the African continent where skin tones tend to be darker and therefore where skin marking is practiced in those cultures historically it's been more common to do scarification rather than tattooing. But in general you know, we find tattooing all across Asia, all across Europe, up and down the American continent right up into the Arctic. Now of course like in individual localized contexts both geographically and historically you're going to get particular iterations of that and also through cultural contacts tattooing is going to spread and change and ideas are going to develop so that's a sort of you know, part of the story but yeah to answer your, your very specific question it's really interesting that and this is the reason the book's called Painted People is that tattooing has been used really both practically and rhetorically to sort of separate cultures from one another or from mainstreams from subcultural groupings within particular societies so the Greeks the Han Chinese, the Persians, for example, the Romans too actually didn't have a kind of mainstream cultural tradition of tattooing. There wasn't a kind of socially authorised tattooing tradition in those places, but they were certainly aware of tattooing and they, all of those cultures talked about their enemies <laughs> um, and their neighbouring cultures and the tribes and cultures they wanted to invade and conquer in most cases as being the places where the tattooed people lived. And in, you know, in the British context, for example... The idea was more chronological than that. There was this idea, although likely false, as I lay out in the book, that the ancient Britons were tattooed and we kind of culturally grew out of it. You know, that there's some kind of teleology from tattooed barbarianism through to kind of modernity. And wearing clothes. And wearing clothes, yeah. I mean, the idea is has always been, you know, again, rhetorically, that you start off with tattooing and then eventually you kind of culturally mature and, and, and are able to wear wear clothing of course that leads us to something else that i think is a theme in the book and really interesting is that you know there's a lot of tattooing going on historically underneath people's clothes that isn't visible and i think there's been a tendency to assume that because it wasn't visible it didn't exist but again i think it's super interesting to now be able to think about what actually is going on underneath people's clothing in historical periods and, and, and find really that there's much more tattooing, I think, than people imagined. Yes. And, and actually just, we'll leave the ancient world in a second because there's so much more to talk about, but there's a wonderful story, probably kind of apocryphal, that, that you tell that I think is worth, worth sharing about this, an instance in which so ancient Greeks or contemporaries of the ancient Greeks and Persians used tattooing for a very specific method this is hysteris isn't it yeah so I, this is a brilliant and it's it's one of those stories that yeah almost certainly apocryphal it makes it makes a nice story it's interesting insofar as it was you know one of those things that was you know canonical from those ancient greek texts and so you know the idea for example that antiquarian brits didn't know about tattooing until it was discovered in the 18th century in the pacific is obviously nonsense because they were all very familiar with this story and it's great right so the story is that the persian wars going on and two of the tyrants want to rebel against the Persian emperor. These Greek tyrants, sort of puppet governors, decided they wanted to rise up and, and conquer their supposed ally. But they can't send a message by conventional means because the Persians control the postal system. So any messages, any messengers, in fact, would be stopped and searched. And so you couldn't risk having a message that would reveal your treachery. So instead, this guy Histiaeus, who had to get a message to his, well, in some stories, his stepbrother, 
in others a different relation but basically and to get this story to him or this request to him to start this rebellion and so they came up with the the great wheeze of tattooing it on this slave's head and waiting for the slave's hair to grow back so it would be invisible but therefore you could guarantee that a the message wouldn't be lost b probably they'd never search for it and c you know it would it would basically also you could trust that the slave wouldn't sort of dob you in, so to speak, because he'd also be at risk of being killed. And also wouldn't know. I mean, I love yeah. that the sort of Rosencrantz and Guildenstone quality. Yeah. Like the slave doesn't know what's written on his head. Yeah, well, this is also, I think, really brilliant. And this was one of the things that I think is interesting about, the, about tattoo history in general. It gets you to some weird places. Because, of course, like, as someone who is tattooed, you go, this guy probably ask, like, why they were tattooing his head. And um, it turns out, yeah, that apparently kind of bloodletting of the head, this, this slave in one telling of the story, in one of the versions, had some problem with his eyes, had some eye disease. And apparently one of the ancient Greek methods for curing your eye problems was to kind of bloodlet on the scalp. So the, sto- so the story goes, they convinced this guy, this poor slave, that, you know, this might sort his eyes <laughs> his eyesight yes. now which I love uh, and, and Histias yeah. was going to do it personally as well which he must have felt was a compliment exactly yeah you get to come and meet you get to come and meet the governor and, and he's going to kind of do this lovely medical procedure on, on your head I mean there's lots of plot holes in it obviously but it's a great story and it and it's one of those things that you know computer scientists have have used that apocryphally as a kind of birth of cryptography but I think it does tell us some, something interesting about the history of tattooing as well even even though it probably didn't actually happen Now, when we go into the early modern period, as you say, the sort of origin myth of the understanding of tattooing is that we, Captain Cook comes back from the Pacific and he says, look, there's these strange, you know, Pacific Islanders who are heavily tattooed, who I guess are sort of Maoris and other South Pacific denizens, and that that was when the West first discovered tattooing exists. Now, this is one of the big bones of contention in your your book is this is just bollocks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And this is something, you know, I really owe this to a scholar who she's no longer an academic, actually, but she it's called Anna Friedman. She wrote a really amazing PhD thesis on this and coined the term cook myth by kind of laying out the evidence for this story. Because it is, you know, it's very persuasive. It's still something that you find in, in books and, and in the popular imagination that there was no tattooing in Europe before Captain Cook discovered it in, in the Pacific in the 17, late 1760s. And... In one degree, in one sense that is true, as I point out, the word tattoo is a word we get from the Pacific Encounter moment. Before then, the kind of marks we're talking about are called just that, marks or pricks or stains in English. But, you know, when you realise that, for example, there was a portrait of a tattooed Native American woman hanging on the wall of the Royal Academy, a woman who'd been in London, who'd arrived in London almost coincidentally with Cook's departure... You realise that actually there's a whole tradition, even if you're not interested in tattooing happening kind of organically in in Britain, there's a whole tradition of tattooed people coming from the Americas, either as captives or as diplomatic visitors, for several hundred years by the point of Cook's voyage. And that's completely effaced from historical memory. And I, I initially did think about this as amnesia, right? Like, how did we forget? And then, of course... The twist, I think, in the tale here is that there was another portrait of a native Inuit woman who also had tattoos on her face. Slightly afterwards, she was introduced to Joseph Banks. But the portrait of her, this woman called Kalbvik, her her facial tattoos were overpainted. They were effaced. And I think 
that gives you a clue as to what's actually happening. It's not quite that everyone forgot about tattooing, but like the the rhetoric and the kind of colonial project is changing around this time. And the fact that native peoples in Canada still had tattooing was a bit of an indication of the failure of the missionary project. You know, Inuit had many of them had taken quite gladly to Christianity, but in a syncretic way had not given up their as far as the missionaries were concerned, pagan ways. And the tattooing was kind of an illustration of the limits of this project. By the time we get to, you know, and, and, and certainly from the late 15th century onward, the conversation about tattooing in the Americas was like, look, these people are just like us. They might be a bit behind us on some evolutionary, cultural evolutionary timeline. You know, we are, as Europeans, more advanced than they are, but they're, we're the same. By the time we get to that age of colonialism and empire in the 18th century and 19th century, the need is to distinguish those people from Europeans in a, in a much more defined way. And tattooing is a very visible way of saying these people that we're finding or encountering in New Zealand, in Tahiti, in Fiji, in Samoa, they are not like us at all. And the tattooing is indicative. So rather than being a kind of amnesia, it's an illustration of a kind of political project where the, the rhetorical utility of tattooing is changing over the time. And, you know, so and it take was, their stuff because they've got this weird stuff on their faces. Yeah, yeah. Fall. And it was it was just so, I just thought that, you know, and I, I do lay out, again, examples of, of British people and Irish people and American and, you know, white Americans being tattooed through the 18th century, pilgrims getting tattooed from the late 16th century onwards. So there's lots of tattooing on European bodies as well. But, like, it just really amused me and puzzled me that the fact that there is a portrait of a tattooed face in the first ever Royal Academy exhibition in the literal moment that Captain Cook first sets foot in Tahiti. Now, actually, there's this, as a sort of side issue, you, you talk about the Inuit tattooing, and is there a sense of how much, or any settled sort of understanding of whether or not the sort of North American, North North American tattooing traditions kind of are thought to have been carried there from the Vikings, essentially, or whether they, they're a sort of separate evolution, because you, you know, we have these Viking tattoos, don't we? Yeah, well, actually, there's the Viking tattoo, like Viking tattooing probably isn't a thing. We, there's not a huge amount of evidence of, that they were. They're getting in, pop, in popular culture, Viking and Norsemen often do, but there's not much good evidence that there was a huge amount of tattooing there. I think what's interesting about, or complicated in particular about the Inuit traditions, is that they were almost into, unlike the tattooing traditions in the Pacific, which did survive colonisation, really as early as the 1750s, tattooing in the Arctic is, is very, very, you know, very, very few and far between, hard to find. And actually, it's taken, and to write the, the two chapters, which are about Inuit women who were brought to England over the course of a 200-year span, in order to write that properly, I had to really speak to an Inuit tattoo artist, a colleague of mine, a friend of mine called Maya Sialip Jakobsen, because there's not a huge amount of stuff written about it. And it's really through the work of scholars and indigenous people who are you know, able to read and work with these colonial sources, but also who have access to, to communal memory and communal knowledge that they're able to start piecing back or recreating or reinventing some of these things. And yeah, like those traditions, what's interesting about the, about the Inuit tattooing even compared to what's happening in let's say on the eastern seaboard or in the great plains is that technically it's very different so inuit tattooing is sewn or more specifically basted it's it's basically on um rather than putting the ink in with a needle vertically into the skin you actually sew or pull a soaked sinew through 
it gets called by um, a, a British guy who writes about it, Kakining, which is a bit of a bastardization of the one of the Inuit language terms for it, Kakinuik. But basically, like, I sort of wish that we, you know, I could be writing a book about Kakining rather than tattooing if that term had caught on. But that that did, those traditions are quite separated from, from other local tattoo traditions. People have made the argument, and some anthropologists have made the argument, that we find, for example, in Siberia, needles with eyelets that could have been for for basted tattoos and that indicates a cultural continuity and there is a continuity certainly between arctic tattooing in greenland and arctic tattooing in alaska suggesting a kind of you know a real historical depth to it but yeah more work needs to be done on that stuff and and kind of is being done as we speak thankfully yeah and the 19th century this chapter you have on the so-called 40 thieves yeah which (laughs) feels like sort of the beginnings of if you like a kind of you know what went on to be a sort of ongoing recurrent moral panic association with tattoos and criminality yeah um, can you tell the story of the 40 thieves though? sure yeah well the, the story of the 40 thieves again is one of those things that it's very easy to take for granted and certainly historic some historians have and, and certainly people at the time took it seriously over the course of probably about 40 years beginning in the early 19th century Lots of like member pickpockets, uh, both boys and girls, were picked up in London, you know, ruffians and vagabonds, and they were marked with the mark of the 40 thieves, right, which proved that they were part of this kind of organised crime gang. We can imagine this kind of Dickensian thing, you know, there's a, there's a, a passage in um, Oliver Twist where Fagan sort of alludes to this, you know, that, that they might identify our gang by the marks they have on their bodies. And... When you actually look, as I did, at all of these newspaper articles which talk about arrests of gang members, the mark of the 40 Thieves, this sort of gang tattoo, seems to like move around the body and change in both kind of, you know, symbology and, and size. So sometimes it's dots on the hands, sometimes it's numbers on the hands, sometimes it's like the name of your fancy man or fancy woman. In one example, a triangle. And... I anchor the, the, the story in the book on the story of these two women, Jane and uh, Mary, who basically they kind of coerce some poor drunken sort of sop who's come to, the, come to town on business. So they get him very, very drunk and then they, they rob him. And the cops literally find this guy with his trousers around his ankles and he's like, oh, I was just heading to bed. But, you know, the, the, the cops pick up these two women and it, it turns out they're covered in tattoos. And therefore, the, the cops assume that they're part of this gang. And actually, you can look at their criminal records and you can look at their transportation records because they were both transported to Australia. And you see that they actually are, both of them, fairly extensively tattooed. They are women who have tattoos. And it, it takes the, the jailer, this guy called Waddington, who's one of my heroes and these heroes in the book, to basically point out to the magistrate and to the judge that just because these people have tattoos doesn't mean they're part of some tattooed gang. In fact... Lots of tattooed people aren't in the 40 Thieves. And in fact, maybe the 40 Thieves don't even actually exist. You know, he said, I heard a great deal about the 40 Thieves, but I never knew of such a gang. It's all nonsense. (laughs) And, you know, unfortunately, the FBI and even probably the Met Police in the UK are still making that mistake sometimes. They're reading tattoos as a indication of affiliation or an indication of bad moral character. And in fact, the whole discipline of criminology begins in this same place of trying to figure out why criminals have tattoos and good law-abiding people don't do but of course 
if your only reference for tattooing is on the criminals you arrest or the criminals you study in jails and you're not looking more systematically for who's tattooed and who isn't you end up with a very skewed and obviously wrong place but but sort of thus begins yeah as you said the moral panic around tattooing and deviancy yeah one of the extraordinary things to to read in your book is that as well as obviously you know dangerous criminals and sailors and prostitutes and so forth if you made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem you'd probably come back you know get to Jerusalem, say your prayers, and then go down the arcade and get tattooed. Yeah. Seems to be the standard thing. Yeah, just like, I mean, just like the equivalent of like going on holiday to Magaluf, right? Like uh, a little <laughs> memorial piece. Yeah, I mean, in fact, the best evidence, again, partly because of the, the an accident of record keeping, really, but the best evidence we have of tattooing on European bodies is, is on pilgrims, particularly those wealthy pilgrims who were able to, who, who wrote diaries and whose diaries were preserved in museums you know, these kind of great men of letters. Essentially, from the late 1500s onwards, yeah, Jerusalem was in control of, uh, or controlled by the Franciscans. The Franciscans, you know, fancied, you know, making a bit of a, a bit of money, and, and Jerusalem became a great centre of commerce, as well as a great centre of religion. And, yeah, it was really the done thing from, from the late 1500s, early 1600s, right the way through to the present day, actually, to get tattooed with a mark which would, of course, commemorate your visit. So you could come home and show your pals that you've been and you were particularly religious, but also, you know, as a sign of your of the depth of your devotion and depth of your allegiances. And, you know, Edward VII, before he was crowned king, he went to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage. Victoria, after the death of Albert, sent him out there in 1861 to kind of, you know, grow up and become a bit more bit more sensible and while he was there he was tattooed with a with a pilgrimage tattoo with a Jerusalem cross other pilgrims you know used those moments to do something a bit more subversive so I write in the book again about a guy called William Lithgow a Scottish Protestant who goes to Jerusalem and while he's there he gets the tattooist to tattoo on him the crown of King James which when Lithgow is a few years later captured by the Spanish Inquisition they forcibly removed from his body because they don't like this religious symbol of Jerusalem alongside the political symbol of Protestantism. But yeah, that's a real, real old practice. And of course, again, partly because of the archival lens we have, but certainly because of the kind of people that were doing those pilgrimages, most of those were on pretty wealthy, pretty well-to-do travellers. You know, Again, there's an image in the book of one particular traveller whose name we don't know, but is clearly a pretty wealthy guy rolling his sleeves up and showing off not just Jerusalem tattoos but Nazareth tattoos as well and also an image of a, a German pilgrim whose whole arms were tattooed in a way that makes him look like a premiership footballer right and that's a hundred barista yeah exactly and a hundred a hundred years before Captain Cook but this very visible very kind of standard part of the pilgrimage experience I mean that seems to cut against at least quite a sort of prevailing wind which is that on the whole Tattoos are associated with, you know, what academics sometimes call the subaltern, yeah. i.e. they're foreigners or they're colonial subjects or they are members of the, you know, criminal classes yeah. or whatever, yeah. marginal people. I mean, is there a time, I guess particularly in the West, but you might speak to other cultures, where, if you like, tattooing was overtly mainstream, was it was a thing that, if you like, respectable people were expected to do. Yeah, well, I think, so I think you've hit on a really interesting point there. And I think even where tattooing is on, you know, wealthy and privileged subjects, it never in the West ever quite raises to the level of, of totally acceptable. You know, even when aristocrats and kings are doing it, people think it's a bit weird. 
So it never quite gets there. But the, the, the reason we have, for example, a tattoo industry in the West is because wealthy people are willing to pay for it. You know, there's loads of tattooing happening in more intimate settings, both, you know, on ships, in prisons, in public schools, amongst friends. But it takes a kind of patronage by people with money to make tattooing into an industry. And that happens in the US in around the 1870s and in, in Britain in around the 1880s. And it is basically the fact that, for example, literally following on from his dad's example of getting tattooed in Jerusalem, George V, when him and his brother are in Japan in 1881, they get tattooed. And then again in Jerusalem, actually. But that becomes a very well-known and quite famous moment in their, in their life story. And when, when George marries Mary of Tech, the tattoo experience in Japan is part of his, you know, one of the sort of notable scenes from his life that they publish in the graphic and things like that. And so after that, you know, everyone's like, oh, tattooing's pretty cool. Should, we should do that. And all of a sudden, these guys who had been tattooing maybe in the army or tattooing in more intimate contexts, all of a sudden found a, a way to make, make money. And yeah, it is, it is only the patronage of the wealthy for about 20 years at the end of the 19th century. That means we have a tattoo industry at all. It never quite rises to mainstream, I wouldn't say, but certainly it rises to the level of, you know, if you want to be a cool, hip, fashionable, dashing member of the House of Lords or, you know, captain in the army or something, having a tattoo is a good indicator of your taste and refinement. That's interesting. I mean, is there a sense of why, if you like, it, it does have a tradition in, you know, particularly stereotypically sort of sailors and and also, you know, there's prison tattoos and all that stuff. Why does it have that, that deep kind of continuity in that, yeah. that social level? Well, so I think there's lots of reasons for that. Like, one, uh, partly is that actually... If you're looking for tattoos in a historical record, one of the places you'll find them is in naval records. You know, navies are recording, certainly from the 1800s onwards, they're recording bodies of sailors because they don't want them to run away. <laughs> so, you know, there is a kind of, again, archival lens problem there. But, but being aboard a ship imposes a lot of interesting means, motives and opportunities, so to speak. So every sailor has a needle with them to darn their socks and darn sails. Gunpowder, with which you can make tattoo ink, is around and prevalent. You can just mix a bit of your rum ration with tattoo ink and create a pretty plausible tattoo. Also, as one you know, historian of like sailor folk arts once wrote, like sailors cannot leave their mark upon the sea. So when you're encumbered, and this actually goes for some theories that anthropologists have about why tattooing persists in nomadic or you know, was present in nomadic societies too. If you want to kind of either memorialise home or you want to kind of signal a particular set of social allegiances and you're limited on the amount of stuff you can carry, it's easier to do that on your skin than having a, a necklace or a, some kind of other trophy or object, you know. Um, also, you know, a tattoo you can't lose. It can't be stolen, like a locket might be, if you want to remind yourself of home. And last of all, and this is, I think, also one of the reasons why you find tattooing not just in on board ships and in prisons, but also in amongst footballers and in public schools, is that it creates this really perverse and interesting relationship to solidarity and power. So on the one hand, all of those places, you're expected to wear a uniform. So tattooing is a way of marking yourself out as an individual in some senses. But also in all of those contexts, you are in some senses a group against pitched, in some senses against a hierarchy, against a power, against the office class, against the warders, against the schoolmasters and so as well as being individualizing paradoxically tattooing can also be affiliative can also 
make you feel a connection with your you know fellow uh, bunkmates or, or people in similar situations and like that is something again that non-tattooed people worry about you know how can tattooing make you individual when when everyone's got a tattoo now well one of the answers is that paradoxically tattooing can do both these things at once it can set you against a particular kind of you know hierarchical situation but also bind you together with others of like mind potentially and art historically i mean what are the sort of influences or currents i guess particularly on on western european tattoos i mean because it it seems to have if i've read your book right have a you know there's a japonism um yeah to have been a big input even though as you say at various points tattooing was kind of absolutely verboten within japan yeah well again this is so this is that moment when when tattooing becomes popular in the west is is precisely coincident with with the opening up of japan and again, like, you know, I've, I've had really interesting conversations about this with the director of Japanese art at the British Museum, because you can look at these great canonical studies of Japanism, many of which are on the shelf behind me on my bookshelf, and you can look in vain for tattooing in the indexes, but tattooing is precisely part of the same story. And it, again, sort of makes sense in a really obvious way that the images people tattoo on their bodies are the images that they enjoy and the images that are trendy and popular in their life world. You know, that, that seems like a very obvious thing to say, but it's not something that fits that easily with a psychological or criminological account. So when Japan's opened up to the West at the end of the 1850s, tattooing is one of the things that is very surprising and exciting to European visitors. But of course, so is like ceramics, so is silverware, so is cloisonné, etc. Very, very quickly, all of the good examples of those more material art forms end up in museums or grand private collections. So if you go to Japan as a private visitor and you want to get some good, authentic Japanese art, rather than the kind of tourist tat that everyone else is getting, you have to go and get tattooed. And the, and the English language guidebooks to Japan around the end of the 19th century explicitly say that. They say, you know, go and get a tattoo if you want some real Japanese art. And actually, yeah, tattooing was banned by the Japanese very, very soon after the Meiji Restoration because they thought, you know, in their mission to become and appear to the rest of the world modern and European so they could avoid being colonised, they thought tattooing made them look old-fashioned, made them look a bit too barbarian. But there was a bit of a loophole in the law that it was illegal to tattoo Japanese people, but it wasn't illegal for Japanese tattooers to tattoo foreigners. And so this also created a bit of an incentive for those Japanese artists to explicitly market themselves to European and American travellers who are coming to Japan for the first time as tourists. You know, George, George V is one of those people. Many Japanese artists also leave Japan and set up shop in places like Hong Kong and Singapore, also in Paris, in London, and then in the United States in the first decade of the 20th century. And so, yeah, like, it's a very straightforward art historical story. You know, tattooing is linked to the kind of zeitgeist in other media and it feels like a really obvious thing to say <laughs> but it's not it's not something that um has otherwise been given much notice you know this sort of continuity or connection you know not often explored between tattooing and fine art has its issue in one very extraordinary story which turns out to be sort of apocryphal about picasso taking up tattooing <laughs> yeah i love this and this is um one of my favorite chapters in the book because you know it's so weird and I never thought that in a book about tattooing and tattoo history I'd be writing about the vicissitudes of the beef trade during the cold war <laughs> but here we are yeah the story goes and it came to my attention first actually because it was published in a book on the history of tattooing in Scandinavia they basically said like oh Picasso was a tattoo artist and I was like 
I don't think that's true. <laughs> no, you know, no, no biographer of Picasso has ever mentioned that anywhere. I don't think that can, can possibly be true. So we, I tried to trace where this story had come from, and it turned out that it was published, as best I can tell, only once, at least as far as i found so far, in an Icelandic newspaper in the 1950s. And the story was that basically this, this wife of a beef magnate who was close to President Perón had turned up at this grand ball with a brand new tattoo by Picasso on her back, this fashionable, trendy, artistic tattoo. But in the design, there was a hammer and sickle revealing her to be this sort of secret communist sympathiser. And this caused, so the article went, this huge diplomatic incident. America refused to import any more beef from Argentina. It was this huge kind of diplomatic scandal predicated on the fact that this woman wouldn't have a hammer and sickle tattooed on her unless she was actually a secret communist because we know that tattoos tell you something about what people really believe but very very quickly none of this bears out right like there's no record of this woman her name you know she's an invention in the in the article there are several names in the article that are real people like Daniel Kahnweiler Picasso's biographer but many of the other names seem not to have existed and so you go, OK, well, this is maybe just a silly, weird story, you know, a sort of a little gag. You know, what? imagine if Picasso, would, and you know, Picasso being a communist sympathiser, maybe he did it to you know, get one over on this woman. But as I looked into it more and more, this story, more and more of it was like more plausible than it would need to be to be a silly morning joke. So, for example, you know, the, the supposed kind of offending hammer and sickle is very small. There's a photograph with the article, but the hammer and sickle is very tiny. And so if you were trying to make a joke about this, maybe it would be a bit more visually legible on the page. It turns out that while uh, this woman who's called in the story Anita Alores didn't exist, there was a couple who lived in Paris of Argentinian wealthy socialites, one of whom was a huge political player and ran a beef empire it turns out also weirdly picasso worked for these two people he did a door for their apartment alongside with matisse and hated them far from being crypto communists like this guy Ancorenia, he apparently like was a hitler sympathizer and used to bring out mein Kampf at dinner and like all of this stuff is like way more plausible than needs to be for a sort of silly morning joke in a tabloid newspaper and then i found that there was, an, at the time of this article, there was an active kind of CIA, it was a very particular moment in, in Cold War history, Iceland, there was a big debate going on in, within Iceland about whether it should, should stay allied to the United States, whether it should keep hosting American military bases in Iceland. And it turned out there was an active CIA propaganda campaign to try and kind of, you know, keep the Icelanders on side and turn them away from Russian communism. And I can't be sure, and there are other plausible reasons, and I am here spirit spinning a conspiracy theory, but it seems to me that at least plausible that this story was planted in the Icelandic press by the CIA in order to try and, you know, oh, well, this communist sympathiser in, in, in Argentina had a big impact on beef exports. Maybe if you're too sympathetic to the Soviet Union in Iceland the US will stop importing fish from Iceland. And, you know, another big important part of the Icelandic economy was shipping fish to the United States. So it's properly weird. It doesn't seem to be true, but it's far too subtle to be a, a joke. And I also, I don't speak Icelandic, but I have friends that do. And I actually spoke to a professor at the University of Iceland about this as well. And they both, the people that read this for me who speak Icelandic said, look, this isn't written in the tone of a joke. Like, it is a sort of weird story. 
but it's not told as an obvious piece of satire, you know. And, and yeah, that is weird. But the only reason that works as a story is because, for example, we have to believe that if someone has a tattoo on their body, it means that it's indicative of what they truly believe, you know. Um, so even at the heart of this strange, silly, weird story is something interesting, I think, about the role tattoos play in in contemporary discourse and, and, and in historical discourse. And yeah, I love that story. And if anyone who's listening to this can help me figure out anything more about it, <laughs> let me know. Coming up to the present day, one of the sort of interesting things about 20th century, the way that tattoos is coded, is that you say essentially that the baby boomers were sort of, you know, slightly killed off tattoos yeah. or tattooing as a mainstream thing and pushed it back into a kind of, yeah. you know, this is definitely the criminal class of box. In fact, in your introduction, you quote an article, which I think is Melanie Phillips. It is. Um, and well done. Yeah, it certainly is. Yeah. Well, I remember it going zooming around. It's quite interesting because she's, of course, squarely of the baby boomer generation. Yeah. And on social media, which is largely populated by millennials and Gen Z, there was a sort of, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. So it seems representative of that generational yeah. divide. Can you explain why that happened? Melanie Phillips has been anti for a long time, and I've I've been writing articles sort of in vain refuting Melanie Phillips' sense of tattoo history for a long time, and I'm sure I will continue to do so. Yeah, like so basically what happens is, as we said, tattooing was pretty popular in the end of the 19th century amongst wealthy people. Like with all cultural trends, things that begin with the wealthy, the wealthy quickly lose interest. And so certainly by the 1920s, in the aftermath of World War I, tattooing had slightly become a bit more déclassé. It was written about in that point as being fashionable, but it wasn't quite as patronised by by lords and ladies as it had been in earlier decades. But, you know, during World War II, there were lots of people getting tattooed. Wars are good for tattooing for the reasons maybe we've already talked about, right? Like, they provide ways of memorialising and marking things in particular ways. So there's lots of people getting tattooed during World War II, both, you know, people that stayed at home, wives and girlfriends, as well as men at the front of all classes, officer and, and soldier. But of course, after the war in the 1950s, tattooing is, again, the kind of tattooing that's visible is on people who are rolling their sleeves up at work. So if your bank manager or your king is tattooed, you're not going to see it. There's a story, for example, of a woman called, called Edith, Marchioness of Londonderry, who'd been tattooed in Japan as part of this kind of first boom. And then it was really the 1930s that skirt heights had risen and her leg tattoos were visible for the first time to the general public and people were like, oh my God, you're tattooed. And she'd been tattooed at that point for almost 40 years. And after the war, that kind of really kicks in, you know, like people who are rolling their sleeves up at work are the tattoos you're going to see. And of course, also in general, in this art historical sense, like culture is changing. So we have modernism, we have, you know, furniture design, architecture, clothing, through the 50s and 60s are becoming much more monochrome, much more kind of stylistic. Young people are getting rid of all that chintzy stuff of the Art Deco period and, and earlier. And tattooing, the aesthetic of tattooing doesn't really fit that either. And then to really put uh, an exclamation point on that, tattooing became particularly stigmatised after World War II when the horrific stories of tattooing in concentration camps on, on Jewish people and others became you know public knowledge the horrific kind of literal stigmatization and and dehumanization of people in, in concentration camps during the holocaust tattooing took on this very very particular or increased sense of stigmatization and yeah it was just sort of out of fashion for a while and i think 
the baby boomers who grew up in that generation just are products of that moment in time. You know, before then, as I said, tattooing was never entirely mainstream and it certainly was looked upon slightly askance, but it wasn't, certainly not in Britain, thought about as something that was particularly uniquely deviant and terrible. But that really kicks in in that post-war period. The other thing, of course, is that the ideas that, that link tattooing to things like criminality begin in Europe, begin in Italy and France and Germany, um, and they have much more currency on the continent. You know, they're, they're, it's linked to the kind of rise of eugenics and all those awful intellectual movements that kind of underpinned those conflicts of the first half of the 20th century. Those intellectual ideas didn't really seep into British acceptance, you know, in, in intellectual circles until after the war too. But the idea that tattooing was linked somehow to kind of you know, otherness really, really kicked in in that period. And yeah, my, my parents, maybe yours too, were products of that generation. And it's super interesting to me to talk to people of that generation who were like, no, no one was getting tattooed. And I have to say, well, people were getting tattooed. It was just, you just didn't see it very often. It's also super interesting to me, actually, that where we are now, there was um, a YouGov survey that came out a few weeks ago, and it basically said that Gen Z, you know, people younger than me, 18 to 25 year olds, are more sceptical of tattooing and less likely to think you should have a tattoo in a professional work environment than people who are millennials and Gen Xers. The boomers and the Gen Z people find common cause on what they think about tattoos in general, maybe for different reasons. I think my suspicion for, for Gen, why Gen Z people don't like tattoos so much as they might have used to is, is partly anxiety about the workplace, you know, but also it's just not very cool. You know, no one, no one wants to... Uh, look like their dad right like this is just the way fashion works yes no and there's also you talk i mean it, which, which made me think it's near tom gunn's wonderful poem blackie the electric rembrandt yeah that tattooing took a really central place in gay culture yeah in the 80s and 90s i mean how does that relate to its its acceptance or otherwise by the mainstream yeah well i think again this is a real hidden story and i can touch upon it in the chapter in the book about mr sebastian alan oversby who was tattooed who was tattooing from the 1970s right up until his death in the early 90s but almost exclusively until actually the very late part of his career tattooing gay men and that was a part of the tattoo industry that was almost exclusively under clothing i mean not just under clothing, in his portfolio, many, many of his clients, you wouldn't know they were very heavily tattooed if you saw them in their underwear, but take their pants off and they had full, and I won't be graphic for your podcast listeners, but they had basically full coverage in the area that would be hidden underneath, you know, a nice pair of 1970s Y fronts. And what is so interesting about Alan is that he was part of the tattooing community. Lots of tattooers knew him and respected him. He was a very nice guy, educated guy. He'd been an art teacher. In fact, he's one of, if not the first British tattooer to have an art degree, but very, very gay, very proud to be gay. Also an s so involved in kind of subcultural parts of the gay community. But he had his own client base and more or less the other tattooers in London, many of whom were otherwise quite territorial, sort of left him alone or quite the opposite if a client came to them and wanted some part of their anatomy tattooed that they didn't want to do they'd send him to Mount Pleasant where where Alan was tattooing and again I think you know what these ta- what these tattoos in the gay community reveal is again something like quite complicated about visibility but also about something again beyond themselves so amongst queer studies scholars and historians of homosexuality in Britain 
one of the theories about why gay men got into tattooing in the 80s was to sort of perform a certain kind of parodic masculinity, right? The idea that the skinheads were walking around London with loads of tattoos, hyper-masculine, and in a certain proportion of the gay community, that hyper-masculinity was part of the, you know, part of the kind of fetishization of masculinity. And there's certainly some of that going on, without doubt, but... You know, and, and it, I cite in the book like some of these like right wing or, or skinhead fanzines going. We can't tell, you know, who's a skin and who's a who's gay using much less very upsetting pleasant language. Yeah, um, but actually, it turns out that some of the fascists and some of the skinheads happen to be gay themselves. In fact, one of the most prominent, and I mentioned him in the book, Nicky Crane, was the bouncer in lots of gay clubs and also the one of the key organisers for the National Front. Right, so. Again, by kind of looking at the tattoos and thinking about the, the culture and looking, for example, at the fact that the National Socialist Party of the United States advertised in gay magazines in America, you start telling a different story, not just about tattoo history, but about queer history, about political history in, in this country and more broadly. And these are all the things, as I said, that are revealed when you kind of look under people's clothing or, you know, in the case of these ones, when you pull, pull their pants down and see what kind of things are being tattooed you know, in places that wouldn't normally be visible. Right. Now, you talk also, funny about Dennis Rodman. And that raises, to me, this very interesting question of tattoos and copyright. Because loads of people have tattoos that presumably yeah. Disney could sue them for. I mean, what, what is the status of the tattoo as a sort of work of art in, in copyright? Well, th this is one of the frustrating things about writing a book, and again, I'm sure you know this, that as soon as you encode something in black and white and ink for the ages, like, you know, particularly if you're writing about contemporary stuff, things change. So up until literally this month, the status of tattooing as copyrightable was quite unclear, at least as far as case law went. So I think basically lawyers have for a long time been quite clear that definitionally and by a kind of clear reading of the statute you as the tattoo artist have some if not all of the authorial stake in a tattoo the the authorial stake of the person that did the original design is also part of that conversation but you know there have been a few cases that have had wended their way to potentially court cases most of which were in the united states there was a a case of a guy called rasheed wallace who played basketball for the detroit pistons and he his Tattoos got animated for an advert for a Nike. He was sponsored by Nike. And the tattooist who did those basically said, look, that's my art. I didn't give you permission to animate it. Like, pay me off. And they did. They settled out of court. There's another case with, uh, in a film with The Hangover with Mike Tyson. Basically, there was a parody of Mike Tyson's facial tattoo. There's a plot point in that film. And the tattoo artist who tattooed Mike Tyson said, you have ripped off my artwork. And again, Warner Brothers in that case settled out of court. And so, and in the Dennis Rodman case, at the height of his fame, a enterprising kind of bootleg t-shirt artist made t-shirts copying all of Rodman's tattoos and tried to sell them. And so again, Rodman, Rodman sued him to stop. And again, that was settled out of court. So most legal scholars basically thought that if any, any of these ever did get to trial, the tattooist would win. But we haven't had that tested. And last week or the week before, a WWF wrestler, I mean, full circle talk conversation with tattoos, was featured in a video game. And the artist, the tattoo artist who tattooed him, basically sued. That actually went to court, and the court ruled in the favour of, of that artist. So there's also a case ongoing at the moment, which may reach court, may be settled by a photographer of a very famous photograph of Miles Davis, the jazz trumpeter 
suing a very famous tattoo artist called Kat Von D, who tattooed a copy of that on him, and he claimed, you know, that she'd ripped him off. Essentially, it's quite counterintuitive, but yeah, your tattoo artist, or maybe more in more usually some combination of your tattoo artist and you, own copyright in the work. You know, it leads to some weird problems. You know, I mentioned the book, The Case of This Guy, who, when there was a big not quite copyright, but intellectual property case about the secret code, the algorithm that would allow you to copy DVDs. He tattooed that number on him. The company that owned that proprietary algorithm like, had spent a lot of time and money trying to sort of scrub the internet of that number, sent takedown notices, and he was like, well, okay, I've tattooed this on my body now. How are you going to take this down? And again, it was never tested in court, but it poses an interesting question. You know, if, if a tattoo is a copyright violation, if a book is a copyright violation, you burn the book if a, or pulp the book. If a film is a copyright violation, you don't release the film. If a tattoo is a copyright violation, like how, how might you remedy that? And that itself also remains an interesting and unresolved question. But yeah, just again, just another illustration of where, where thinking about tattoos carefully in this historical context can get us to, you know? Yeah, that's extraordinary. Just to finish, I didn't ask you at the beginning, but I'm suddenly intrigued. What was your own first tattoo? Yeah, so I was, um, because I got obsessed with tattoos very, very young, I was basically sort of savvy enough around tattooing not to get a bad one. You know, I knew that I saw friends of mine getting tattooed at the shop down the road from our school, you know, underage. And I, I never succumbed to that because I, I, I was buying tattoo magazines and looking at what was happening, particularly in the United States, and going, well, the tattoos that I'm seeing on the corner here in Essex aren't as good as these ones I'm seeing in magazines. Maybe I should wait. In the end, I, I got tattooed. So I became obsessed with American tattooing, basically. And I was working in France. I went to a tattoo convention. And there was one guy there, a guy called Jack Mosher, who was American. And I was like, okay, I've got to get tattooed by this American guy. And all I got done was some black stars on my wrist, one of which is now covered up and one of which is still sort of there. But anyone could have done that. <laughs> um, I didn't really need to to wait anxiously and find someone who was American to do it for me. But but that was the that was the floodgate breaking open. And then I was very lucky because I was obsessed with this American sort of traditional style, sort of sailor tattooing stuff, uh, World War II and earlier era. I found a guy in London who was doing that work and it became quite popular. It wasn't so much at the time at the end of the 90s. And in that shop, that shop happened to be owned by a guy called Lyle Hardy, who's a real interesting figure in his own right in the history of British tattooing, a real sort of you know, grand figure, this real kind of like, you know, father of the industry in the UK. And really serendipitously, I walked into his shop as a 21-year-old, 21-year-old man and met him. And from then, you know, he introduced me to lots of the people that I've interviewed for the book and spoken to over the years. And he helps me get access to things and, and, and has taught me a lot. So, yeah, I, as I said right at the beginning, I think I was sort of in the right place at the right time, both both geographically and personally and chronologically to work on this project and I feel yeah I feel very happy to and I, I'm very glad that you know I don't know how tattooed you are Sam but like even someone not who's at not, all I'm afraid no, well, there we, well there we go so even someone who's not tattooed Sucked at all that boomer propaganda yeah well, found found something interesting in the book that even if you weren't necessarily interested in tattooing per se you, you found things there to, to pull out so that's that's really kind and I'm really glad that some of the stories and some of the themes resonated with you Brilliant. Painted People is out now. Matt Lauder, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you.